Good evening, listeners. It's time to settle in for another chilling story of suburban suspense. From the slumbering heads of Mount Rushmore to the twin and windy cities. From the unseen depths of the Great Lakes to the rustling husks of cornfields across the heartland. Who knows what ghouls and crawling creatures lurk among us under the Midwest moon. Creek Lake. For the imaginative, open water brings to mind all the unseen creatures lurking below, sharp-toothed predators prowling deep recesses of the ocean, and monsters thick with gills hiding beneath the muddy sludge of swamps. One can be so frightened by the host of dangers underwater that they never think to fear what skims the surface, riding along the top like a skater's quick blades. Set back in a forest of black and white birch trees was a placid lake called Iron Creek. A dozen summer cabins surrounded the water on one side, with racks of rental boats and a general store on the other. A trail a mile long circled the lake, and piney black hills rose up protectively around it all. The last weekend in July was sweltering, and only one family braved the lake's heat, opening up their cabin while all the rest sat dark, a string of empty hothouses. After helping their parents haul in groceries and water jugs, Patrick, Mike, and Mel raced off to explore. They ran down the nearest dock, stopping just short of the edge and reaching their arms wide into the humid sky, feeling like kings of summer. After surveying their watery kingdom, they sprinted to the store to buy watermelon taffy, soft pink and studded with black candy seeds. Back at the cabin, they rummaged through the closet of games and frisbees, pushing aside fishing poles and nets to reach their favorites. In the living room, they took turns spinning each other in a saucer-shaped chair, gripping the orange vinyl as the whirling grew fast enough to blur their vision. They dealt cards in a huddle on the floor, while their basset hound Homer lazed heavily nearby, snoring into the shag carpet, plush and tricolored like pasta. Finally, when the evening sky turned a murky gray streaked with purple, it was time for the children's favorite tradition, the campfire. Their mom laid out plates, dogs, and buns on the picnic table, while their dad lit crumpled newspaper in the ashy bottom of the pit. Together, the family and their hound watched as the bonfire's flames slowly worked up to consume the larger logs. Once the fire strengthened into a steady blaze, flames dancing bright and hot, Patrick lifted a flashlight to his chest, like a preteen politician about to make a solemn speech. His eyes traveled a slow loop around the circle of his family's faces, making certain he had their full attention. He clicked on the flashlight's beam beneath his chin, and the light cast his face in a stark, monstrous shadow. Tonight's story is about something that happened at this 
very lake, he said, his gaze lingering on his sister's face. A couple years ago, a little girl about Mel's age bought a bag of taffy from the store across the water. It was watermelon-flavored and covered with hard little black seeds. She didn't know any better and ate the seeds right along with the candy. Harmless, she thought. And it was, at first, just a normal day, playing in the water and running around in the woods. But then, late that night, she started to feel strange. Oh, no, Mel whispered, not knowing what would happen, but certain it was bad. The little girl decided to go to sleep, thinking she would feel better the next day, Patrick said. But late that night, a sharp pain jolted the girl awake. The hurt was like nothing she'd ever felt before. It was a wild, twisting pain, like big, ropey tentacles squirming around all over inside her. What happened? Mike asked, a perfect accomplice. The seeds and the candy were real, and they had started sprouting watermelons all over her body, Patrick said. Wait! Mel and I ate that taffy today, Mike said, feigning fear. You didn't eat any seeds, right, Mel? He asked, eyes wide. You ate them too, she cried. I, I was just pretending. I spit them all out. Mel clutched her stomach. She could feel the start of twisty vines writhing in the dark of her stomach. Don't believe anything your brothers tell you, Mel's dad said. You're fine, Mike patted Mel's shoulder. Yeah, you'll be okay. Then he leaned in so only Mel could hear. Just don't drink any more root beer tonight. You don't want to water the seeds in your gut. The next day, the family headed out onto the water, Mike and Patrick with their mom in a fishing boat, and Mel with her dad in a paddle boat. Mel paddled her tiny, jelly-sandaled feet beside her dad until they reached the center of the lake. Her dad cast off while she reached over the edge of the boat, dipping color-changing rocks in the cold water, a fistful of teal, pink, and black polished stones. As she ran her handful of rocks through the water, she noticed a swarm of bugs moving across the surface, or rather holding still while the water moved around them. She leaned over to study them more closely. How did they do that? Float and glide like they didn't even touch the water? It didn't look real. Mel strained closer, her nose inches from a rippling reflection, when suddenly she lost her balance, sliding over the edge. Panicked, she dropped the rocks as she scrambled to stop her fall. Her dad caught her at the last instant, snatching the back of her life vest and pulling her over, but not before she had soaked her shirt and shorts. Mel sat shivering in her seat as her dad pedaled the boat back to the dock. She thought of her lost rock sinking to the bottom of the lake and hugged her arms to her chest, teeth chattering in the sun. After that, Mel gave the water's edge a wide berth, terrified of the lake and how quickly it had nearly taken her. By dinner, she had calmed enough to talk about what happened, to tell her brothers and parents about the strange bugs that glided over the water like magic. Patrick found the insect in a giant National Geographic book the family kept in the cabin. He laid the book open on the kitchen table, and Mel studied the magnified photos of the spindly creatures. 
She couldn't shake how strange the bugs had looked walking across the water, like she was in a dream where everything was as it should be, except for the very top of the lake, the space where water and sky touched. That night, the family built their second bonfire. Patrick and Mel roasted marshmallows, while Mike took his seat on the storyteller's stump, pulling the hood of his raider's sweatshirt close around his face like a mini Grim Reaper. He had a new story prepared, just for Mel. He started by explaining the science of water skimmers gliding, comparing them to a paperclip magic trick. Normally, a paperclip sinks in a glass of water, he said. But it can float on the water's surface if it's lowered slowly with another clip, tricking the surface tension. Skimmers' legs and bodies are covered with tiny hairs that trap air and repel water, Mike said. That's how they can skim across the lake, like they're on skates. They never break the tension. That means they can prey on other creatures on the top of the water. And once they catch something, like a moth or a tadpole, they pierce the creature's body and spit enzymes into them, dissolving them from the inside and sucking out the innards, leaving the victim a crumpled husk. Mike paused and smiled reveling in Mel's sticky, terror-stricken face. That's not the scariest part, Mike continued. When water skimmers feed too much, they don't stop growing. They don't, Mel whispered. No, Mike shook his head. They mutate into giant monsters, big as cars, he motioned to the jeep in the gravel drive beside them. That's what happened to the skimmer here at Iron Creek. It gorged on mosquitoes and all kinds of dragonflies, growing bigger and bigger each summer, until it started looking at swimmers and fishermen as food. Because bugs that big need more than dragonflies to fill them up. They need little kids stuffed with hot dogs and s'mores to feast on! Mel's mouth formed a marshmallowy O, and chocolate oozed from tight, frightened fists in her lap. Okay, Mikey, that's good enough for tonight, their dad cautioned. Don't worry, Mel, Mike said. The skimmer hasn't been seen at Iron Creek in three years. We'll keep our eyes out for it if it comes gliding across the lake for you. As was often the case following her brother's tall tales, Mel left the campfire a live wire of fear. When she needed company to the outside late that night, it was her dad who slid on his tennis shoes and trekked with her into the cricket-thick dark. Mel trampled the short trip in her pajamas and boots, stealing quick glances at the black water of the lake and imagining the skimmer racing in massive strides toward her. She climbed into the pitch-black outhouse and felt fear close in with the springing shut of the door. Dad? Mel called. Still here, he answered from just outside. Moments later, Homer let out an urgent, mournful howl. Mel hadn't even heard him follow them out of the cabin. Fear grew like heavy fruit in her chest when he bayed again, the deep note rolling across the lake like a foghorn. Quickly, Mel unlatched the door and pushed outside to find her dad standing with his back to her, a black silhouette facing the lake. What, what is it? Mel asked. Oh, I'm sure it's nothing, he answered, turning around. I bet Homer caught the scent of a rabbit or a raccoon and got riled up. Come on, let's head back in. 
The two looked for Homer in the bushes and thatch of trees behind the cabin before finding him at the edge of the dock, looking poised to jump in. It took several attempts for them to call him over. So entranced he was by whatever he thought he saw in the water, but he finally pulled himself away from the lake and joined Mel and her dad on their walk back to the cabin. Not five minutes later, Mel's dad joined her mother and brother's chorus of snores rippling through the open rooms. Too keyed up to sleep, Mel grabbed a copy of the National Geographic from the kitchen and brought it to the floor beside Homer's bed, huddling over its pages with a flashlight. She marveled again at the close-up photos of the bugs, their slim stick legs and sharp mouths. Mel couldn't yet read most of what the book said about the striders, but she saw the graphic that told how fast they were. An illustration of a man beside a bug the same size, showing how someone as tall as her dad would have to swim over 400 miles an hour to match their speed. Mel couldn't decide which scared her more, the skimmer's size or its speed. Eventually, her exhaustion overpowered her, and she climbed back into her sleeping bag on the fold-out couch, feeling less comforted than usual by her glow-worm nightlight and dragonfly pillowcase. She sprayed down her sleeping bag with a thin sheen of bug spray before falling into a fitful sleep, dreaming of creepy antennae thick as windshield wipers. The next morning, Mel was left with Patrick and Mike when their parents drove into town for the day. The boys' only instructions were to keep Mel from too much caffeine and to stay off the water. The kids spent an hour lazing around the docks, but as Mel finished her second coke, her brothers started buckling the straps of her life vest around her. Ah, I don't want to go out there, she said. That's fine. You can hang back here. Just watch out for the dock goblins and be careful of all the snakes between here and the cabin. We'll try to come get you if we hear you scream. Yeah, your call, Patrick added. The brothers shrugged, the gesture barely visible beneath their puffy life jackets. That was all it took to propel Mel after them. She grabbed a metal fishnet from the dock, gripping it in front of her like a color guard member with a rifle. The three climbed into a boat as a thunderstorm slowly gathered, clouds darkening and rolling low over the hills and the tall grass and cattails beside the lake. They pushed off, drifting steadily away from the shore. Patrick and Mike forgot about trying to scare Mel and paddled slow circles around the perimeter of the lake, enjoying the calm water. Mel's grip on her net loosened, she breathed in the smell of the storm and watched scattered raindrops play across the lake. She smiled to see trout darting just beneath them, no doubt confusing the rain for food. After twenty minutes on the water, the storm kicked up, lightning striking closer and thunder surrounding them. The rain had picked up too, falling across the water in thick sheets. Patrick suggested they head back to shore. Mike squinted through the sudden downpour, his bangs plastered to his forehead. He wanted to keep exploring, but finally agreed. They started to steer back to the dock as a lightning bolt lit up the far end of the lake, illuminating a stand of aspen just beyond. That's when they saw it. At the edge of the water, camouflaged by the trees behind it, an enormous creature with legs like tent poles stood on the surface of the lake. The three didn't breathe. They looked on in disbelief as the distant figure... Completely still, except for its long, probing antennae twitching in the rain. As if sensing them, the skimmer turned its massive head in their direction. 
In the span of two heartbeats, the creature was racing toward them, its front and back legs spread wide as its middle legs paddled like oars, propelling it forward. The three had no time to retreat, no time to make any decision at all. The creature was on them in an instant, closing the length of the lake in seconds. For an unbearable moment, it hovered over the boat, silver-brown and still. Then, very slowly, it reached its long, narrow needle of a mouth out toward Mel. She scrambled backward, falling to the bottom of the boat as Patrick and Mike began swinging their paddles at the monster. They hit its legs and head, trying to push it beneath the water. They slammed it down with their paddles, but its body buoyed back up each time, never staying submerged. Mel crouched in a terrified ball in the back of the boat as her brothers exhausted themselves, striking the monster again and again. Suddenly, the skimmer's head loomed frighteningly close to the brothers as it toppled to its side, contorting its body and slamming into the front of the boat. The children blinked at the fallen creature, stunned and unsure of what had happened. Then Mike spotted a rope tied around the bug's head and front arm. The three turned to see their parents on the rain-soaked dock. Their mom had roped the skimmer with a frayed dock line turned lasso, and their dad was already jumping to the boat from the dock to finish squashing the bug, making absolutely certain it was killed. That summer was the last the family spent at the cabin. They had plenty more vacations together, but never again at the lake. The skimmer at Iron Creek became another family legend shared at weddings and barbecues, always met with laughs of disbelief. Years afterward, Mike would often wonder if he had summoned the creature with a story, or if he somehow knew without knowing that the creature was real. Either way, it made great fodder for his sci-fi novels. He sketched out the best of his bonfire tales and colorful lurid collections, publishing them all with a Midwest press, and finding critical acclaim for the story of the skimmer at Iron Creek Lake. He relished the fan mail he received for the story, a weekly avalanche of kids' sketches and handwritten questions about where he got the idea for the monster. But one letter stopped him cold. S.O.S., the note read. We've had an infestation of massive skimmers at our lake in western Minnesota. I tried the method you laid out in your book, but nothing's worked. They've multiplied, and now the area is swarming with them. Police and animal control are afraid to travel close. Please, help. 